Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will guide us in our our thoughts and our spirit and our attitudes that we might come closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title of this week is Resting in Christ. And the memory verse is Matthew eleven twenty eight, and we all know this one. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When you hear that, what, what comes to mind? What kind of rest are you thinking about? Is this what you quote at night when you're trying to get to sleep? <coughs> Emotional rest? Rest from... Everything. From everything. That's how I, look. I mean, I do. I look at it. It's rest from everything, from your problems, from your whatever you have in your life. Rest is there for you. Rest from everything. Certainly, rest from trying to save ourselves. Sure. How about rest from trying to be loved? Sure. I know many of my patients are struggling to be loved. Mm-hmm. They work so hard at it, and they don't feel loved. Mm-hmm. But in Christ, we can rest from that, can't we? Yeah. Yeah. How about rest from trying to prove oneself? And many of my patients don't feel good enough, so they're always working harder to be good enough because they don't feel good enough. How about rest to try to prove one's significance, their value? Many people work so hard, feel so burdened. First paragraph, it says, Christ was a living representative of the law. No violation of its holy precepts was found in his life. Looking upon a nation of witnesses who were seeking occasion to condemn him, he could could say unchallenged, which of you convicteth me of sin? What does it mean, a living representative of the law? What kind of law would this be if he's a living representative of the law? What kind of law would it be? Oh, I would like that. She said it's design law. See, it's not legislative rules, is it? Why would it be that way? Because, uh, or we maybe put it this way, why would we need to see the law in Christ rather than on stone? Why? The living law goes so much farther than the written law. We can see it in action and in love. Yes, and so you can't actually see living law on stone, can you? It's not alive. Stone is dead. You can't see functionally what it does. You have to see functionally how it functions in a living being. And so you really can't see God's law, his design protocols, written on stone because the stone are dead. Why, was it, why, why then was the Ten Commandments given? If that's the case. If what we just said is true, and I think it is, then why the Ten Commandments? Why were they given? Diagnostic. She said diagnostic. To, to help diagnose. So one reason was because we needed a diagnostic instrument to help reveal it. And the reason we needed the diagnostic instrument was because the law was no longer actually written in the heart, was it? Yes, Wendell. The game of gossip. You know, where you tell a friend and then they tell someone tell someone you end up being a customer. That's totally different. So you need to have something that is not changeable as the vehicle by which something is conveyed. So writing it on stone was allowed to put it in something that we could refer back to, a reference point. But the reason it was put on stone, so I like what you're saying, it's something that's reliable, we can go back to, we can check the, the reference database, make sure we haven't uh, wandered too far off from what, the, what, what it was. The, but it was put there only because it was no longer 
operating in the hearts of men, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Perhaps God was wanting to actually contrast uh, imposed law versus natural law. Even back when he wrote the Ten Commandments, it doesn't invalidate the Ten Commandments. They are still a, a transcript of the law of love. But when down through history, when a, a people came to observe all the Ten Commandments and all the Mosaic law, they still missed the natural law. So yeah, they, they may have actually intended to contrast, this is what happens when you impose law, this is what happens uh, when you see the living law. And, and how many of the prophets said over and over again what he wants was, what was it he said? Micah 6.6, 6, Hosea 6.6, 6, and other places? What does the Lord require of you? To be just, to... To love mercy. Yeah. To walk humbly with your God, right? It's, in, in other words, if you, if you, even in the Old Testament, it keeps coming back to the message of that something inside man needs to change. We need a new heart and right spirit, what David prayed in Psalm 51, which can't, we can't have it written on stone. So Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made and it was ordained uh, through angels by a mediator. It was added. Now, some people read that and go, well, that's not talking about the Ten Commandments. Do you know it's a very common theme in some circles of Christianity that, that they believe the Ten Commandments, in the form they are in Exodus 20, have always been in existence rather than they were added at that time in history. What do you all think? Always in existence or added at that time in history? The fourth wasn't always in existence. See, even in this class, there's some, there's some... So how can we tell? Prior to the creation of humankind, was there a written law somewhere about sins passing down three and four generations? It wasn't needed. It wasn't needed. Was there a, a, a law the angels had about not committing adultery or honoring their mothers and fathers? No. no. See, this form of the law was added after sin for the need of the human species who was in sin. Yeah. And then one of the founders of, of the Adventist church, Ellen White, wrote, I'm asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer, both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. In this scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, is speaking especially of the moral law. So while all law was added, especially the Ten Commandment law was added to diagnose and lead us to Christ. What do you think of the question Jesus asked? Who, who of you can convict me of sin? What is sin? Transgression of the law. That's, that's like the number one thing we're trained from kids. And it's not wrong. That's not a wrong answer. No. But first, the next, very next question, hopefully you're going, what law? Transgression of the law. What law? The law of love. Can anyone convict Jesus of transgressing God's design law of love? No. But what about imposed rules? Did Jesus ever transgress imposed rules? Yes. Yes. Many times. This is very important to get your mind around. Did he, for instance, did he heal on the Sabbath and that transgressed some of their rules? Did he instruct people to actually carry burdens on Sabbath? Pick up your mat and go home. Uh, this transgressed the rules. Did he endorse the disciples pulling heads of grain on Sabbath? Yes. Um, did he speak with women, prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans, which, which violated their, their rules? Did he drive out the money changers? I bet that was a, I bet there's a rule against that. But I bet there was. What do you think? Yeah. 
How about, how about this one? Did he stop participating in their annual feasts? Think carefully. How about the last Passover before his crucifixion? Did he take Passover or did he institute something new? Did he institute something new that day? So he was, he was stopping the feasts. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. What does this tell us about the balance between traditions and rules that religions come up with versus law of love, design law, God's protocols? Is there a difference between them? What is it that ultimately matters? How one keeps their traditions or the condition of one's heart? So, second paragraph, it says, Jesus' life fully reflected the meaning of God's law, the Ten Commandments. He was the law of God lived out in humanity, in human flesh. Thus, by studying his life, we learn what keeping the commandments is like and how to keep the commandments in a way that is not a dry and spiritless legalism. What do you think of that? No doubt, Jesus was the law of God lived out. There's no question. I don't think anybody would question that. But did Jesus himself give them a new, a new command, which was an old command, but he said it's a new command? What was the command that Jesus gave them? Love as I love. Yes, love. That was the command that he gave them. And he said, all law hangs on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. Do we get more love when we focus on the Ten Commandments? Interesting, isn't it? What happens when we spend more time focusing on the Ten Commandments? What typically happens to people when they spend more time focusing on the written law? Yeah, we become actually more self-referenced, don't we? More fearful, more insecure, more guilt-ridden, more, more legalistic, more rules-oriented. The law of worship. Do we get more love when we focus on Jesus? And what does the Bible actually say in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 2? Fix your eyes on the law. Is that what it says? Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Can love be commanded? I command you all to love me. And if you don't, I've got Russell who's going to beat you up. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, you can't get love that way, can you? So how does God get love? How does he get it? What's his method? Can God get love into the hearts of his created beings? Genuine, free-given, heart, soul, total being, self-sacrificial love by using might and power. No. No, he can't. Not by might nor by power. We must put the Ten Commandments back in their proper place. And they were added because of the fallen state of the human being. The law of love no longer written in the hearts. Our minds were darkened and didn't understand the actual terminal state in which we were functioning. And so they were given to, if you remember the, what it says, for two reasons to diagnose and to bring us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But once the law brings us to Christ, get your mind around what I'm about to say, we are to shift our focus away from the law and focus on Christ. It's done its job. It's brought us to Christ. Christ now is the living law. And in that relationship with Christ, that's where you find transformation. Far too many people don't make that transition. 
They, they stay focused. And what they come to Christ for, they don't come to Christ for a relationship. They come to Christ for a legal adjustment, a payment. Sunday's lesson talks about the, the yoke of Christ, the yoke, which is light. When you think of a yoke, what comes to mind? And keep in mind now, I do this with my patients because my patients sometimes need this metaphor, but many people don't know what a yoke is anymore. A yoke is not a bridle. A yoke is not a bit. Bits and bridles are used to control. That's not not the purpose of a yoke. What's the purpose of a yoke? What's it functionally doing? Joint things together. Pardon? Joint things together. It's joining things together for a purpose. What's its purpose? Transmits force. Transmits force. Share the load. Share the load. Share the burden. That's what it's for. The yoke shares a burden for service. For service. And so we are to yoke up with Christ. Can a person, before we even get into another quote I've got for you, can a person be saved from sin by themselves? Absolutely not. Can Jesus save a person from sin by himself without that person's participation? No. We must yoke up with Christ. Only in that relationship with Christ can we experience transformation, healing, regeneration, renewal, salvation. Only. We have to yoke up. So this is a, uh, from Desire of Ages 329. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. The yoke is an instrument of service. Cattle are yoked for labor, and the yoke is essential that they may labor effectually. By this illustration, Christ teaches, teaches us that we are called to service as long as life shall last. <clears throat> we are to take upon him take upon us his yoke that we may be co-workers with him. The yoke that binds to service is the law of God. The law of God. Now, notice the next words. The great law of love revealed in Eden. The great law of love revealed in Eden proclaimed upon Sinai and in the new covenant written in the heart is that which binds the human worker to the will of God. If we were left to follow our own inclinations to go just where our our will would lead us, we should fall into Satan's ranks and become possessors of his attributes. Therefore, God confines us to his will, which is high and noble and elevating. He desires that we shall patiently and wisely take up the duties of service, the yoke of service Christ himself has borne in his humanity. He says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Love for God, zeal for his glory, and love for fallen humanity brought Jesus to earth to suffer and to die. This was the controlling power of his life. This principle he bids us adopt. What is the yoke that binds us? It's the yoke of love. Well, how do you get love into your... How does God get love into your heart and my heart? How does that happen? By command, by exercise of power, by threats, by thunderings, by lightning bolts. How does he get love into the heart? He did it by demonstrating. He did it by... Actually, actions of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. It is by acts of love, by his beneficence, by his patience, by his grace, by his gentleness. Or, as it says in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. By seeing how kind he is, our hearts are broken. We don't... We don't by our goodness and all the wonderful things we've done, deserve such good treatment from him. But he treats us good anyway. 
Last paragraph. What else does Jesus mean when he says he will give us rest? Does he mean laziness? Does he mean anything goes? Of course not. Jesus has a very high standard for us. We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount. But a relationship with Jesus is not intended to wear us out. By learning of him, by emulating him and his character, we can find a rest from many of the toils and troubles of life. And as we see, we'll see, one expression of that rest is found in keeping the Sabbath. Resting in Jesus means what? How would you explain that to somebody? What does it mean to rest in Jesus? To have peace. To have peace? Why, why though? Why, why do you have peace when you rest in Jesus? Why? Because you know that he's there for you to help you carry your burden. You don't have to bear anything alone. Okay, so because you have an experience with someone that you find trustworthy, okay? And you've experienced his help and other problems in life, okay? So there is peace when you know someone's got your back. Isn't there? In your own human relationships, if you have somebody you can trust, a spouse, for instance, that's trustworthy, does that bring a certain peace knowing your spouse has got your back? Okay, that same type of trust. Well, I, I like that. That's right. But that only can, we can only have that peace if we actually have an experience with a God who's trustworthy. Do we get that peace when we're, when we're worshiping a God we need to be protected from? That we need to be hidden from? Yes. A lot of times people use this as an evidence that we don't really need to keep the Sabbath anymore. It's just rest in Jesus. That's all we need. Do we need the seventh-day Sabbath? Yeah, we're going to come to the Sabbath here in just a minute. It's in the lesson, and I'm going to pick that thread up. We can just put, put because that's a great thread we need to pick up. I'm going to suggest, though, that one of the reasons we can have peace with Christ, would it be true that as we come to Christ and we walk with him, that he brings us in our life more and more and more harmony with, with him and his design? Or can I say it this way? As we walk with Christ, he leads us into a path that we live in harmony with his laws. Is that fair to say? If we're following him, would he lead us out of harmony or in harmony with his laws? In harmony, in harmony with laws. And do you understand his laws are design laws? So if you're living, let's look at some physical ones. When you exercise regularly, this is the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. And if you exercise regularly... While you're using energy, and there may be muscle-burning discomfort to exercise, you're also, though, getting more energy. Do you know that you get more energy when you exercise regularly? That after a little bit of rest, you sleep the night, you wake up, you have more, you're usually more refreshed, and you have a little bit more uh, vitality and, 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 and initiative. All types of neurotrophins turn on. You keep your brain healthy. You lower your risk of dementia. The anti-inflammatory factors come. So moving in harmony with design law brings you greater health across the board. How about altruism, law of love, giving, volunteering to help others? What happens when we do that? Science shows that if you do that as an adolescent and, and young adult, that you end up doing better in school, being more successful in the community, having more leadership positions. And late in life, if you've continued to volunteer, you actually have better physical health, mental health, less depression, less dementia, stay out of nursing homes longer than people who don't volunteer. It keeps you healthier. And law of worship stuff. If you worship an angry dictator God, what happens? A God that, that incites fear. You actually don't have peace. You can become more authoritarian, more dictator-like. If you worship a benevolent God, a God of love, by beholding we become changed. We become more kind and compassionate. We have less conflict. And, and there's more laws, but, but you get the idea. As we walk with Christ, we have that personal experience, but in that personal experience, he's moving us to live in harmony with how life is constructed, and there's more health and peace there. So we have less turmoil, less conflict. We have better rest. Monday, 
If, as so much of the Christian world argues, the Seventh-day Sabbath was abolished, replaced, superseded, fulfilled, whatever, then why did Jesus spend so much time dealing with how to keep the Sabbath? Any thoughts on, on that question? Because there's a straightforward answer to that. Because he was dealing with the Jews. And the Jews were Sabbath observers. That's why. See, one could argue this, this, this particular argument in and of itself doesn't prove anything about the, the perpetu- perpetuity of the Sabbath. It doesn't. Why did he spend so much time? Because he's dealing with the Jews and how they kept it. You could ask the question, well, okay, how much time did he spend in Samaria talking about the Sabbath? When he talked to the woman at the well and the Samaritan, how much time did he spend talking about the Sabbath there? Not at all. Second paragraph. Knowing that one of the reasons Israel has gone into Babylonian captivity was because the nation had defiled the Sabbath, the Pharisees had wanted to prevent that from happening again. Hence, they created a whole litany of rules and regulations about how to keep the Sabbath. We'll come back to those in a minute. But there's, there's a statement here, an assumption, if you will, that one of the reasons they went into captivity was because they weren't keeping the Sabbath. Is it true? Yeah? I heard it, yeah. Well, maybe we should look at Amos 8, 5-6. Amos was alive during the time of Israel's uh, rebellion and, and the wicked kings prior to their taking, being taken into captivity. And he was prophesying against what was causing the, the need for the captivity. You need to repent from these things so you won't go into captivity. And here's what he says, Amos 8, 5, and 6. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating the, uh, with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the floor with the wheat. Were these people not keeping Sabbath? Or were they observing the Sabbath and they were hating it and they were watching their clocks, waiting till sunset, so as soon as the sun was over, they could go out and, and cheat people in their businesses and business practices. Notice, these were Sabbath keepers. They were avoiding work. Their businesses were closed. But they were chomping at the bit for the sun to go down so they could open their businesses up and go out and make money by cheating people. But they were. They were closing their businesses down. They weren't working on Sabbath, as the the law says. That doesn't mean you're keeping the Sabbath. See, the issue, I'm going to suggest, was not over the Sabbath. The issue was over selfishness in the hearts of the people. And the Sabbath, if you remember, was a sign given to them by God that God is the one who makes them holy. Ezekiel 20, 12, and 13. It says, also, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us so that they would know that I am the Lord that makes them holy. Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the desert. They did not follow my decrees, but rejected my laws, although the, the man who obeys them will live by them, and they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. How did they desecrate the Sabbaths? By opening their businesses on Sabbath? I'm going to suggest that wasn't the problem. The problem was they desecrated the Sabbath by closing their businesses on Sabbath and observing the Sabbath with selfish, hardened, evil hearts, chomping at the bit for the sun to go down so they go out and cheat people. Thus, the Sabbaths were signs that God gave that people were looking. These are the signs. And this is what God looks like. He looks like a bunch of cheats, a bunch of thugs, a bunch of people who sweep up the, the, the sweepings on the floor, put it in their wheat, and then sell it to you as food. They were misrepresenting God. Because they claim the Sabbath is a sign that makes them holy, and this is what their characters look like. 
What about today? How many Seventh-day Adventists religiously keep the Sabbath but find no joy in it? It's not a delight. Remember Isaiah? Unless you call my Sabbath a delight, you're not keeping it. How many Adventists today? They watch the clock waiting for sun to go down so they can get about their business. Then they are also desecrating the Sabbath while they avoid all the work and fastidiously keep the TV off and the channels turned so they don't, won't even visit a neighbor who might have a TV on. They're still Sabbath breakers. That's what we learn from Israel's captivity. What do we learn? Why did they go into captivity? Because they were plowing their fields on Sabbath? Or because they rejected God and wouldn't allow him to heal their hearts? Thus they remain hard-hearted and selfish. I think it's an accurate illustration. What does sin do in reality to people who partake of it and participate in it? It enslaves them. We're a slave to sin. So they went off into captivity. Perfect illustration. Parents, can you use parental authority, coercion, pressure, threats, to make your children eat broccoli, spinach, or kale? Can you, can you make them eat it? You can. Can you make them enjoy it? You see? God can use thundering and lightning and, and, and threats and, and, and earthquakes and, and displays of power to get people to bow down on the seventh day of the week and shut off their TVs. But he can never get them to love. He can never get them to have that day to be a joy by using such methods. And that's the real key, that we have a heart that loves him, and the day is a celebration. It's a real joy in the heart. This is out of Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in the, and in the love of God. It is mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. This is a service that you get when you worship a God who threatens to punish if you break the rules. This is the service of, of law. Level four and below on our moral development scale. How many churches have taught the children in their church that God is a God who imposes rules and he keeps track of rule breakers and he must punish those who break the rules in order to be just and then they see their children grow up and leave the church. Why? Because it's violating the law of liberty, one of God's design laws. And when you coerce and threaten, you instill rebellion and the kids rebel. I want to read the last four chapters showing how, how silly it got at the time of Christ on Sabbath keeping. If a, hen lays an egg, if a hen lays an egg on Sabbath, is it okay to eat it? The majority opinion of the Pharisees was that if a hen was an egg-laying hen, then it was not okay to, uh, to eat an egg laid on Sabbath because the hen was working. However, if the hen was not an egg-laying hen, if it was just a hen being fattened up to be eaten, then it was okay to eat the egg because that wasn't the hen's primary labor. <laughs> Is it okay to look at yourself in a mirror on Sabbath? The answer, no, because if you see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it, and this would be reaping, and as such, a violation of the Sabbath. If your house catches fire on Sabbath, is it okay to go salvage your clothes? The answer is, you should carry out only one set of clothing. 
However, if you put on one set of clothing, then you may carry out another set. (laughs) By the way, if your house catches on fire on Sabbath, it's not okay to ask a Gentile to put it out for you. But if the Gentile is putting out the fire, that's okay. (laughs) Is it okay to spit on Sabbath? The answer, you may spit on a rock, but you may not spit on the ground because that would be making mud or mortar. Where is this from? Uh, this is uh, from the uh, rules that the, that the Jews at the time of Christ had implemented on the Sabbath to keep to keep the Pharisaic rules. Yeah, to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. Is it okay to play ball or ride a horse on Sabbath? Well, in some parts of the world, Adventists can't ride horses on Sabbath because to saddle a horse and bridle a horse is work. You can't do that. It's work to put those things on. In other parts of, of the, the world church, it's a wonderful thing to go on a horseback ride out in nature, so it's no big deal at all. In some places, it's, it's play and fun to kick a ball on Sabbath. In other places, it's uh, simply enjoying oneself in nature. Same thing. Same thing. Silliness. It's about the heart. It's always about the heart. Do you read that list of things that I just read and get inspired with love? (laughs) Think about it. If God were the kind of God who actually gave those types of instructions, what kind of God would he be? Would you, would you worship? Would you, would you have admiration for a God who functioned like that? Do you see when we teach kids silly things, do we have stuff like that? Well, we were at GC in San Antonio. Remember the, remember guys, everybody in the room who was there? And walking around the GC down to San Antonio, walking around the community, there were restaurants and they had signs in the window, get your Sabbath voucher, food vouchers here. And you could go into a restaurant and you could buy ahead of time before the Sabbath, a food voucher sold by that restaurant in $10 increments. And then on Sabbath, you could go in and you could eat at their restaurant and you could give them back their food voucher to pay for it. And many Adventists were doing this. Now, what is a food voucher? It's a piece of paper that now has ascribed to it a certain amount of value that you can exchange for goods and services. What's a a $10 bill or a $20 bill? It's a piece of paper that has a certain value that you can exchange for goods or services. Some of the Adventists actually thought that it would be sinful to use dollar bills on Sabbath, but they could use their voucher on Sabbath and it was perfectly fine. If the hen is a laying hen or the hen, you see, it's the same silliness. What kind of picture of God do you think was being represented by this type of behavior to these people. What about the fact that the manna fell six days but didn't fall on the Sabbath? They were supposed to pick the manna on Friday for Sabbath. I mean, that was God's doing. That wasn't man's. God didn't let it fall on the Sabbath. Yes, and, and, and when in history did that happen? And who was he dealing with? And what was he helping to demonstrate? You don't think he's dealing with the same kind of people today? Well, I don't think God is actually providing our food for us in that way today. I don't think God is providing that kind of food for us today. He was dealing with a group of slaves that just came out of Egypt, and he's trying to establish in them a pattern of behavior to help them understand that the Sabbath is is different. There's something different about it. And he does that by providing food six days a week, and on the seventh they have twice as on the sixth they have twice as much that lasts through the seventh. But then again, I have friends that work full time Mm -hmm. and so they don't have time, they say, to prepare dinner for Sabbath, and they go out and eat on Sabbath. Because that way they don't have to work to prepare a meal. But yet other people can work and prepare the meal for them when they go out and eat. Yeah. What do you say to people like that? I say that, that it's, it's an issue of the heart. 
When, when they asked Jesus about working, he said, I, my father's working every day of the week. And, he, and Ellen White, if you take and get her comments on that, she says on the seventh day, God actually works harder on the seventh day than he works the rest of the, day of the week because people are bringing many more petitions to him on the Sabbath. Okay, let's figure something else out. <laughs> According to these friends, when they go to the restaurant, half the restaurant is full of Seventh-day Adventists. So what does that tell us about the condition of the hearts of the Seventh-day Adventists? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't. It doesn't. Because we can't read hearts and minds. But we just said it's the condition of the heart. So what are we saying when we say that? You can't tell the condition of the heart by whether someone's eating on Sabbath in a restaurant or not. (laughs) Impossible to tell. That doesn't reveal anything. In fact, you could have many people who would never eat on the Sabbath that are just like the Pharisees who would want him down by sunset to go and crucify the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. But where does it come in that you have six days to prepare for the Sabbath? But the seventh day you rest. People that, okay, they have six days to get gas in their car. They come up to Sabbath, they don't run out of gas to go to church, so they stop and buy gas. But they've had the time to get the gas. The problem with the rule, looking at the rules and regulations is that it splits and divides us. And it puts us against each other as opposed to unifying us. You know, the, the relationship concept that God is trying to instill in us, the love relationship that he has with us, what that does is draw us close to him. And what's interesting is you said how much time Jesus spent teaching about the Sabbath. But what's interesting is I would bet the majority of those times he was spending it showing them what they're doing wrong as opposed to what they're doing right. For instance, you know, in their face, um, in a way, you know, no, I agree. I agree. So, so for top of Tuesday's lesson, it says, this was the climate that Jesus was ministering, rigid impossibilities required for Sabbath keeping that ruined the original purpose of the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest, to rest from our work, a day to worship God and fellowship with other believers in ways that we cannot do during the work week, a day when kids knew their parents would be more available to them than they might have been otherwise, otherwise have been, a day to especially rejoice in what has been done for us by our Creator and Redeemer. And as I read that, we should ask the question. When you view Sabbath, what law lens are you looking through? Are you looking through design law, God as Creator? Remember, worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this. One of the reasons Sabbath, are we looking at design law? Or are we looking at imperial dictator, system of rules, arbitrary test of obedience? The reason the Sabbath is there to test to see who's loyal. Which, which law lens we look through? Man's law or God's law? Yes. I think um, on Sabbath is a way for God's design law that we reset our clock. So instead of doing for ourselves every every other day, we do for others. And sometimes, you know, if you change your system of like going out to eat or whatever, that doesn't mean you're working or whatever. Just it's resetting a clock. So in the paragraph that I just read, the the lesson authors said this idea that the Sabbath. Um, as a time with fellowship with other believers in ways that we cannot do during the uh, work week. Now, so if you have a friend who's a good Christian, who loves the Lord, a Methodist, and they go to church on Sunday, because this is a, a typical Adventist argument, you get a special blessing on the seventh-day Sabbath that you can't get on any other day of the week. I'm not going to say that's not true. That's not, that's, I'm not saying that. My question is, what is it? What is the special blessing you get on Sabbath that you can't get on any other day of the week? Do well, well, so, so, it might be fellowshipping with that. So, but they can't get fellowship like that on Sunday? So I want you to tell me something that you get on Sabbath that you can't get by doing the same thing on Sunday. Tim, you know, um, 
I have a tendency to be workaholic. If I have the opportunity to do so, I will work seven days a week and continue to do things. Um, interesting enough, years ago when we did a church plant, we had a number of folks that would come over to our house on Sabbath, and after we would eat, we would go down, walk in the middle of our creek, just relax, enjoy, and, and have time with 15, 20 people um, in nature. Now, we've often said, my wife and I, that had we not had the idea of what Sabbath meant to us, we would never have had a situation on a regular basis that we had 15 or 20 people relaxing, enjoying, and communing on the Sabbath. And that so people can't do what you just described on Sunday? They absolutely can. Okay, so the question is, what can you do on Sabbath that you... That you yes? If I love someone and they've asked me to do something, I feel fulfilled by fulfilling what they have asked me to do. So if I worship on Sabbath, and that is what God has asked me to do, then I am showing my love for Him. And that's a blessing. I like that. And the reason I'm asking this question is because if you're really going to go out and witness to people who don't appreciate the Sabbath, you should have a reasonable understanding of what it provides that will be um, impactful in their life rather than simply a, a declarative with no, with no substance to it. This is a declarative without substance. Sabbath is also a tribute to the Creator. And I don't think you can do that on Sunday. You can't? People can't worship the Creator God on Sunday? Sabbath is a memorial of creation. I don't see that Sunday is a memorial of creation. It's like your birthday. No, oh, I, 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 I agree. I agree with you that. You celebrate your birthday on any day, if need be. But it's better on your birthday. No, I, I agree with that. I agree it is. And I think we're going to come back to that point in a moment. But I do know many people who go to church on Sunday who, who believe and worship a Creator God. And worshiping on Sabbath would be with worshiping with people who believe that same way in that community and the strength that's built from that community. Not that they aren't in community on Sunday, but it's with other fellow believers. So this question that I'm asking, does it sound similar to the question the woman at the well asked Jesus? Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, and you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Tell, tell me, which is it? Sir. Uh, you know, you worship on uh, Sabbath, that we worship on Friday or Sunday. So which is it? Is it a similar question? Jesus answered her question, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of Father worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Might Christ say something similar to her today? Believe me, dear woman, the day is coming on which one worships God is on the day is coming on which one worships God is not I can't even read my own my own text here. Let me try this again. Believe me, dear woman, the day on which one worships God is not what ultimately matters. It is the condition of the heart of the worshiper that matters. Very soon you will see those who worship on Sabbath want me off the cross in order to observe that day. You Samaritans worship a confusing tradition of rituals that does not enlighten the mind and has no ability to heal the worshiper. We worship with the creator, creator God, and our minds are enlightened and healed by him because all he asks of us is sensible and reasonable. The time has come that all true worshipers will worship the Father with an intelligent, reasonable understanding of who he is, loving, admiring, and respecting the truth about his nature, character, and methods. 
These understanding worshipers are the kind the Father seeks. God is intelligent and reasonable, and his worshipers must worship him intelligently and reasonably, appreciating the value and valuing the truth of God's methods and principles. The Sabbath is a sign made for humankind, but the Sabbath is not the reality. The Lord of the Sabbath is the reality. And how many people give up the Lord of the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath? And that's the rub. Now, did anybody hear me undercut the value of the Seventh-day Sabbath here? If you did, then you need to rethink what I just said, because I did not. If Jesus said it this way, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So I'm not undercutting the validity of the Sabbath. I'm undercutting that the Sabbath does not become an idol that we worship. And the Sabbath became an idol to the Jews. And for some Adventists, I think it has done the same But we want to value and appreciate the Sabbath in the context where Jesus has created it and for the purpose that it serves. First paragraph on Wednesday's lesson. Still still talking about the Sabbath. It is very interesting to read through the Gospels and to see all the times that the writers recorded the Sabbath incidents between Jesus and the religious leaders. Why would all four gospel writers include, in some cases, numerous accounts of the struggle that Jesus had with the leaders over the Sabbath, keeping if the Sabbath were about to be abolished? Well, again, one reason is because he was dealing with people who had burdened it with a lot of legalisms. But which day of the week today do you think the world abuses the most, if you want to use that word, carries out more of their worldly, hedonistic partying on. Which day of the week do you think it is? Friday night and Sabbath. Okay, this is the big party day of the week. Would, all, would we agree? Does the, does, and some might call, call that desecrating the Sabbath even. Some might use those words. Is it possible somebody might say that? But let me ask you, is any amount of partying you do on the Sabbath make the Sabbath less holy? Can you do anything to make the Sabbath less holy than it is? Can you do anything to make the Sabbath more holy than it is? No. No. So, so when, when it talks about keeping the Sabbath holy, your behaviors neither keep, make it holy, keep it holy, or make it unholy. What is kept holy is you. And, and what I'm about to say is you can't keep the Sabbath holy with an unholy heart. Can you? And this is the big issue. To be, that's what the Sabbath is a sign of. A sign that God is the one who makes us holy. And, and, and the devil tricks us into focusing on behavioral conformity to a day rather than participating into an experience that regenerates us. And many people, the Jews in Christ's day, had security. What was their security in? In their Sabbath keeping. That's what they were secure in, that they kept the Sabbath with all those rules and they didn't break any of them. And they felt good about themselves. But they were still unholy people. Their hearts had not been renewed. Hand back here. Do we as Seventh-day Adventists believe that the Sabbath was created differently than the other days of the week? Was there a blessing? Was there a sanctification that was created into the Sabbath that was not created into the other days of the week. Therefore, if we desecrate the Sabbath, are we 
missing the sanctification and the blessing that was created there that God intended us to get. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you, the answer is yes. Let's see if we can unpack it here. And you can get that same desecration and miss that same blessing by keeping it legally every week. The Jews that were keeping it legally every week were not getting the blessing of the Sabbath. Were they being sanctified and renewed? No, they were not. So so uh, first thing we have to get our mind past is, we have to get our mind past this idea that it's actually connected to how you behave on that 24-hour period. It's not primarily about that. It's primarily about your understanding of God, how you understand how he works. And, and the Sabbath is a sign of him who creates. Now, what kind of law does creation operate upon? Remember the two law lenses. You have design protocols, laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics, law of love, law of worship, law of liberty, law of exertion, all the design laws of how reality works. That's how creation works, design law. But you also have created beings can't create space, time, energy, matter. We can't. So we create up rules. We make up rules. Satan is a created being. He makes up rules. He coercively threatens. This is beastly. This is what the beasts of the nations of man do, the beasts of, of the Bible. Rules coercively enforced. Now, when you use coercive force, you don't get love. You get rebellion. So, and look at, look at history. Whenever God wielded power, and this we're going to come back to your question about what's, what's unique about the Sabbath, it goes right back to its creation. The most Adventists understand the Sabbath was created, which means there was a time in history it didn't exist. It was created. Might and power, what's the danger in wielding might and power? And God does wield might and power. What's the danger in wielding it, though? The danger in wielding might and power is that intelligent beings might be intimidated and begin worshiping out of fear based on threat. That's the danger in wielding might and power. Do we have any evidence of that? When Jesus was using might and power with, with miracles all over the place, miracles, 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 and the mobs began to follow him and they were growing, what did Jesus do at that moment? Do you remember what he did? He stopped using miracles and might and power. Remember? He stopped it. And now the masses disappeared. And he looked to his disciples. Are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? The road, men on the road to Emmaus. Did he use might and power for them? No. How about in Old Testament times? The ten plagues of Egypt. What happened to the people after the ten plagues? After the fire? After the thunder? Did he get love and trust? Or did he get rebellion? A golden calf. How about the tower of, how about the flood? Big display of might and power. And after the flood, did he get loyalty or did he get the tower of Babel? How about Mount Carmel, fire from heaven, big display of might and power. Do we have loyalty and love and trust or we have more, more rebellion and back into idol worship again? God has shown us through history he cannot get what he wants with might and power. So where's the Sabbath come in? You think the ten plagues was might and power. You think the flood was might and power. You think fire from heaven was might and power. What kind of power do you think was displayed when this solar system was created, when the earth was created, when the sun was created, when the moon was hung in its orbit? What kind of might and power was displayed then? significantly more than anything else you've read about in the Old Testament. And it was in the context of the war had already broken out. Lucifer was already on the scene, alleging that you can't trust this God, that he'll use power against you. And so God says, universe, you've heard the allegations against us. You've seen the evidences we've given. Universe, I rest my case. I stop you. For the next 24 hours, I'm not using power. I'm resting. I'm resting. Day one through six of creation week, we learn God is powerful. But day seven, we learn the character of the one who wields the power. 
He provides a space and time for his sentient beings to think freely without coercion, without pressure, that we are really left free to come to our own conclusion, evaluate, decide for yourself. And thus the character of the one, the Sabbath is a sign, a weekly evidence, a proof, if you will, that God is not as Satan alleged. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't make up laws and says, I'm going to keep track and then I'm going to punish you if you break them. That's all satanic. He is the God who creates reality and he wins us with truth and love and leaves us free because love only grows in an atmosphere of freedom. And thus those true Sabbath keepers are those who present truth and love and leave people free. They have the law of God written on their hearts again because you can't keep the Sabbath holy if you are not yourself holy. Clarify, you're saying that the Lord used specific power to show the flood, for example, and um, the fire, and, and, and how you gave different instances of yeah. what he used, yeah. and how the people react. Yeah. Are you saying he did that on purpose to show that? Yeah, I'm saying he did, he did it on purpose. His actions were purposeful, yes. Yes, yes of course, <laughs> but like, his purpose of doing it was to show that this is how humans are going to react. Not a single purpose. He had multiple purposes. There were multiple purposes being played out at once, and our infinite God can achieve more than one goal with a single act. And so one of the, one of the purposes was, was, I think, an evidence over time to actually show that this doesn't happen. But there are other purposes at play as well, primarily keeping open the avenue for Messiah. I think the primary purpose was to keep open avenue for Messiah, which was Satan was working to try and shut down. But the secondary purpose was this revelation. Yes. I have an interesting comment from Scarlett. I think it is important to note that the Israelites were at a moral development level of four or below and viewed the Ten Commandments and the Fourth Commandment as an imposed law. When they went to Babylon as slaves, it was largely because they had become a selfish, idolatrous, evil people, turning their back on their covenant to God. When they were returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in Nathan's time, they were so fearful of being misunderstood by God and punished. This is why they placed all the legalistic rules of the Sabbath. They did not want to be punished by God again, therefore went to the opposite extreme. They were still operating at a moral development of level four and below and viewing the law as imposed. Okay, so I, I, we're going to close. We're about to close because I have something special to do here. But uh, in, in Thursday's lesson, it talks about repairing the breach, the breach in God's law. Many Adventists have been told that we are to be repairs of the breach, and they've been told that we are the repairs of the breach by coming back to Sabbath observance, and that repairs the breach. Notice Ellen White's comments in uh, Prophets and Kings. I don't, can't read the whole quote to you. I'll just read this pertinent part. It says, In the time of the end, Every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man is to be repaired. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers and so forth and so on. Notice, the breach in the law, she does not say, was the change in the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the change of the Sabbath, was the sign or the evidence that the law had been breached. And what is the actual breach in the law? The breach in the law was when Christianity replaced design law with imperial law, imposed law. And that is, and, and that is when the Sabbath was changed. Okay? What church committee ever got together and voted to change the law of respiration or the law of gravity? You don't have to breathe in our district on bad air days. Pollen's 2300 in Chattanooga. You don't have to breathe while you're here t- visiting. Well, why don't they vote to change those laws? Because they can't. And so what does it mean that a church did vote to change God's law other than they don't see it as design law anymore. They see it as imposed rules. And so that real breach in the law happened 
when they changed the Sabbath, but simply changing the Sabbath back and then te- and worshiping on the seventh day and then teaching that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience by an arbitrary God, you are still promoting the breach in the law. You haven't repaired it. In order to repair the breach, you not only must come back to understand the truth about the Sabbath, you must under- understand the truth about God's law, which are design protocols. And the Sabbath is a sign of him who made the heavens and the earth to run on the law of liberty. All right, before we close, we're going to do something very special. Tamara, Bobby... Come on forward. We're going to dedicate Jacqueline Jade to the Lord today. This is Tamara and Bobby Slocum and their daughter, JJ. How old is JJ? Four and a half months. Jacqueline Jade, so we call her JJ. Four and a half months. And they want to dedicate uh, Jacqueline Jade to, to God today. And so the ability to have children is a gift from God. That when you exercise that gift, you're actually giving of yourselves in love, a joint union of love, giving yourself to bring forth a new being in your image for you to love and for you to pour your love upon. This is part of God's design of love as we were created in his image to, and he created us to, with these abilities. And isn't it true, parents, that you never stop loving your children? This is a lifetime, never-ending love for you guys, an object of your love. So Bobby and Tamara have brought JJ here today because they want God's blessing in raising their daughter. They want to uh, put themselves in harmony with God and his design and how they raise her. Look at that beautiful face. He is so cute. (laughs) Yes. And there are many examples in this in scripture. Hannah brought Samuel to God. Jesus' parents brought him to be dedicated. And today Bobby and Tamara bring Jacqueline Jade to dedicate her and themselves and how they raise her. So in order to help you remember what you're doing today, I'm going to give you a little acronym. And it's an easy one to remember, love. Love. And of course, the L stands for love. Be godly parents, and this will be easy in the, in the positive side, to love your daughter, to show her God's love, to reveal God's love to her, and remember that the first picture of God that she will develop will come from how you treat her, that you stand in God's place for her as you're raising her. And so not only love her on the positive side, but love her with healthy boundaries and healthy discipline and healthy instruction and how you run your home. So L, love. O, observe. Be an observer of your daughter. Observe her talents, her interests, her desires, and help her build and develop her skills in godly ways for God's cause. But also observe where she struggles, where her weaknesses are, her vulnerabilities, and help her overcome those to be a tower uh, of strength in God's, in God's kingdom. So love, observe, and value. V, value. Value JJ for who she is, not only as your child, but as God's child. And let her experience as you raise her that she is valued for who she is, your child, not simply what she does. And that she'll be valued even if she doesn't end up rooting for the Patriots. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to (laughs) happen. So love, observe, value, and E, educate. Teach her God's methods, his, his design for life. Teach her the integrative evidence-based approach, uh, God's revelations in scripture, uh, in her own experiences and in science and nature. And that God is trustworthy and her, and her ultimate supreme friend. See, a baby dedication is not a magical ceremony. The ceremony is meaningless without parents who are willing to, t- to make a sincere lifelong commitment to, to raise their child. So Bobby and Tamara, do you commit yourself to love? to observe, to value, and to educate. Okay? Well, the rest of the family would like to participate. Come on up at this time. Our Father in heaven, 
We thank you so much for the life that you've given us and for the capacity to have children in our image. We are here today especially because we want to dedicate Jacqueline Jade, Bobby and Tamara to you. We ask that your spirit will be upon them in a special way. Give them wisdom. Give them insight. Give them the capacity to love in, in amazing ways over the years as the years unfold in their raising of Jacqueline Jade. We pray that you will teach them uh, your methods, that they will love, they will observe, they will value, and they will educate for your kingdom's sake. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.